1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: I'm Caleb Zakrin, assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with David Craig, clinical professor at the Annenberg School at the University of Southern California. We're discussing his new book, Apocalypse Television, how the day after helped end the Cold War. On November 20th, 1983, more than 100 million people sat down to watch the TV movie The Day After. The film imagines a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union focusing on the lives of residents in the small city of Lawrence, Kansas. This book examines the tumultuous creation of the day after, and its creator, Brandon Stoddard's mission, to make such a controversial film for television. Apocalypse Television also examines the film's impact, including political skirmishes about the film's message, and its impact on then-president
1: Ronald Reagan's rhetoric. David, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Caleb, it's a, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much. I really do love your, your network. I love the podcast. It's awesome. Of course, you know,
0: I would love to hear that. We, we you know, we love to have, have fans of the network on. It's it's always uh it always I think makes for for better interviews, uh, because you, you know what to expect. But but before jumping
1: into the book, uh, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. It's a little bit of a winding road. I uh I actually spent 25 years in Hollywood as a TV movie producer. So TV movies were at the very ethos and core of, of what I grew up wanting to do and what I got the pleasure to do. I made about 30 of them. In my career mostly as a network executive um and then i transitioned um into academia starting off um, just as a teaching professor adjunct faculty teaching courses on how hollywood works and then how global hollywood works but then i went back to college and got my phd started uh, doing research and one of the projects that um, came up in my dissertation was this um kind of incredulous story of the day after and the and the backlash and the The impact of the film and i spent 10 years trying to figure out what's the best way to tell that story because it kind of blew my mind so uh, i've written a bunch of books about other topics and i do a lot of research around social media and creators and influencers and um, how they operate differently from hollywood Um, but this was a chance to finally tell this story that to me was the ultimate example of the power of entertainment to transform hearts and minds so in today's age of thousands of TV channels, unlimited streaming,
0: and the democratization of entertainment, as, as you alluded to there uh, in your in your interests, you know, it's difficult to remember what television was like in the early 80s. I certainly don't remember it. I wasn't alive. But can you paint a picture for listeners about what television was like more than 40
1: years ago? Sure. Just to confirm, we're talking 1980s, not 1880s, right?
0: Yes, 1980s. Uh, yeah, I, I,
1: I, I, I don't I think 1880s television was a little a, a little slower, maybe. Yeah, it wasn't. No, there are a lot of people going to the moon, maybe. Um, so, um, yeah, this was. So we t- we use the phrase today, peak TV, to refer to the fact that there are uh, until COVID came along, there were almost 500 scripted television series being made. But in fairness, the best use of that phrase, peak TV, is 1983, when there were really only. Three TV networks that people could watch. There were some people who had signed up for early nascent cable, which had been kind of sputtering um, and trying to get off the ground. There were a few people who had to get satellite, mainly because they couldn't get broadcast. But for the most part, 90 plus percent of the of the of the country tuned in not only through broadcast public airwaves that were controlled by these three networks. But um, that was the uh, one executive referred to it as we at that time, television was the only book on the shelf. We like to think that Americans were reading papers and newspapers, but and listening to the radio, they were, but mostly for different reasons. They turned on their television in their only place they could, which was in the living room and tuned in to see everything from the evening news to game shows, to primetime sitcoms, to the occasional made-for-television movie, some of them actual major, massive water cooler events that captured the imagination of the entire public, and that included this film. So the central figure of your book is Brandon Stoddard. So I what if you could
0: introduce to listeners who Brandon Stoddard was and why he was such a successful and
1: interesting TV executive. Sure. So Brandon Stoddard is kind of like a wonder candle. A lot of what we think of as television, a lot of the formats and genres of television are the ones that he launched, created and succeeded at. Uh, So he was uh, he spent almost his I believe his entire career at ABC, started off the way ABC back in the 70s was at the bottom of the listings. In fact, they used to make a joke that um, there were only three networks, but on any given night they would come in fifth. Um, so ABC was uh, the the upstart. It was it had only launched a few uh, a decade earlier and was really struggling to compete with CBS and NBC. And that allowed people like Brandon to experiment to be daring. So when he was given, for example, children's programming on Saturday morning, he decided to launch Schoolhouse Rock, which was a interstitial animation with the coolest jazz music you've ever heard teaching kids how the language works and how the law works. Kind of ridiculous. Sandwiching that in between episodes of animation um, for kids. And then he was handed afternoon and um, daytime. So he took over programming for the soap operas and led, which led to some of the most successful soap operas that ran for our half a century. Um, But he also um, introduced ABC After School Specials, and that was in partnership with the National Teachers Association. And it was a chance to really tap into this growing number of kids who were coming home from school, tuning in to television. And it was a chance to ironically continue a lot of those educational messages they would have gotten in the classroom back in the 50s, um, but done through more of a Hollywood narrative and Hollywood storytelling. And uh, it allowed um, people to uh, or rather um, Hollywood or television to educate young kids about all sorts of moral, ethical subjects from growing up gay or um, to bullying, to um, health um, and health prevention and things like that. Um, So he uh, he kept moving up the ladder and landed um, uh, the spot of made for television movies this is the peak of that era when there were tv movies on every network and roughly about 300 of those a year he did something quite daring which was he he wasn't the first person but he was the most successful person in terms of the miniseries the multi-night event movie which um which he really came out of the gate with one of the most important miniseries of all time called roots And, uh, that kind of, he became known as the father of the miniseries. Um, they not only handed him every night of the week in terms of TV movies that were available, but he was also handed ABC's, uh, short-lived feature film division called Circle Films, which is where he also dabbled in making films for theatrical release. So he, um, he just kept moving further and further up the ranks until, um, one day he decided um, he needed to take on perhaps the most intense and most provocative subject you could possibly imagine, which was the end of the world. But before jumping into the day after,
0: you know, I'm very curious what, and I'm sure it's changed, but you know what an executive actually does? I think uh, listeners might have a clear picture of what a director does or what a writer does. but but what is it? what is a, an executive doing, especially if they're producing so much content? a
1: really great question. It's a question that I raise with my students all the time. Um, uh, In many instances, programming executives are just like producers except they only have one buyer and that's their network. So programming executives in that time period especially could do everything from acquiring films that were already previously made Co-producing films that all the financing was almost in place and they only added a, a little bit more money and then they got to take credit for producing it. To originally conceiving the entire idea for the movie, hiring producers to go out and make the movie on their behalf and supervising, supervising every aspect of the movie from the inception of the, of the story to the development of the screenplay, to overseeing every aspect of production from afar, which meant watching dailies every day, to sitting through every single cut of the film, the director's cut, the producer's cut, and giving notes. But one of the key things that distinguishes a programming executive from a producer is that they also have to work in-house with their marketing and PR department. Once producers make the movie, they often have very little involvement in the actual selling of the movie. It's the job of the network or the cable network or today the streamer network to get people to show up to see the movie. And that's often something that's rarely discussed. So on top of being effectively an in-house producer for the network, they are also the liaison with the marketing and PR department to ensure that the movie reaches the broadest possible audience. And that can be often... A bigger task, more important and more complicated than the actual production itself. What inspired Brandon to create the day after? just transitioning back to talking about the
0: contents of the book? i think I think that that's a helpful overview about you know what his role might have been
1: when he was thinking about this show. So so, what inspired him really to create the day after? So Brandon had been haunted by the success of Roots and was desperate to find a concept that was so large and so provocative that it would get the attention of not only every newspaper and magazine in the country, like Roots did, but more importantly, pull in an even bigger audience. It was almost a curse in a way. Um, But then one day he went to see a movie called The China Syndrome, which imagined a fictional account of a nuclear meltdown at a nuclear power plant. Um, And it was a concept that quite truthfully, most people in the audience and out in the world hadn't even contemplated because we knew very little about nuclear power plants. And he witnessed a what if scenario of what if a nuclear power plant would melt down. And he walked out and said, well, why can't we do what if America was hit with a nuclear attack? But here's where the twist, the twist is three weeks later, the China syndrome became true. Three weeks later, Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania witnessed a nuclear meltdown. And suddenly, Brandon Starter went from what was, hey, I think I figured out the best high concept you could imagine for a movie, to, oh, crap. This is not really just another fictional piece of entertainment. This has a larger purpose and mission. At that time, and it's really important that audiences understand, at that moment, everyone assumed that it was inevitable. That we would have World War III, that we would all witness a nuclear attack, and that it would cause tremendous, you know, destruction and the collapse of society. In fact, most polls of Americans at that time pretty much said, rather fatalistically, "Oh yeah, we're gonna, you know, we're all gonna die in five years." I mean, this was literally the way we walked around. Almost, com- if we thought about it at all, we we and most people quite truthfully were inured; they didn't even want to contemplate it. It was such a science fiction concept. But for those who did think about it, it was understood, matter of factly, that there's no way we could continue with the, um, the arms race that we were having with the Soviet Union, um, the proliferation of nuclear weapons at level 10, 20 fold more than we would ever possibly be able to use um, the continued modernization of those weapons, the, the growth in the scu- size and scale of the destruction. And at that moment, even scientists were starting to really contemplate the fact that it wouldn't require more than a few bombs to lead to what they called nuclear winter, which was the full destruction of the environment. Um, and all that was on top of the extraordinary risk to society. What happens when? All our food and all of our water supply, and all of our you know leaders are all wiped out in the flash of a of a bomb's eye, and so um, suddenly this went from a high concept movie that he thought could get a lot of attention to a, a um, almost a, a Cassandra like myth mission to to raise the alarm and really kind of break people out of that stupor, believing that it was inevitable or that they didn't have to worry about it.
0: What was the development
1: and production like for the film?
0: Who were some of the other
1: people primarily involved besides Brandon? Sure. So, you know, when, um, when you could launch a film in-house from your own concept, which was something I got to do a couple of times when I was at um, the network, the first thing you, you have different paths that you can take. But in this instance, the first thing they did was hire a screenwriter. And, um, and they found a really extraordinary screenwriter. I'm just going to blank on his name. I'm so embarrassed. He, he just passed away. And he was one of the most lovely people in the world and uh, brilliant. Um, I, I can't believe it. Um, anyway, you can see it on IMDb, obviously. Uh, I'm having a little a brain blurb. Um, but he uh, was a screenwriter who would write um, some of the most successful pilots um, for television during the day. Um, and then he would write these kind of message movies that he rarely thought would get made. But once in a while, they would actually get on the air. And sometimes they were little low budget theatricals. Um, but he was asked to um, come in and tell this story of the, the effect of the bomb hitting. But he was told, do not make it a war movie. Um, he had to really um, keep from politicizing the story. Ed, Ed Hume, sorry, Ed Hume, sweetest, nitest, nicest, and probably one of my favorite interviews. So it turns out Ed Hume was already sympathetic to the story, had um, witnessed a lot of the rise of the nuclear freeze movement out there, and um, but kind of came in with his own vision for the movie, which turned out to be exactly what ABC was looking for. Let's not set this in the White House or in the Pentagon or in Europe. Let's not show um, people, you know, the, the political aspects of the story. Let's make it literally as banal as possible in a soap opera set in this small Midwestern town surrounded by missile silos and therefore very likely to be the one of the first to get hit and let's bring audiences into the story the way you would a soap opera. Characters going about doing some of the most banal things you could imagine, getting ready for a wedding and pondering about having sex and going to a barber shop and grocery shopping. Um, And then, boom, the world ends, and then you watch the disillusion of the world for the next hour of the show. So yeah, um, they got the screenwriter. Ed Hume wrote the script. And then he um, turned in a first draft and from every account, it was so brilliant that that Stoddard wept and immediately said, yep, that's what we're making. We're going to do this, which rarely happens. Usually you go through many, many, many drafts, sometimes multiple writers. Um, he called up Ed Hume to say, um, guess what? We're making your movie. And Ed Hume was absolutely despondent. And, and Stoddard was a little confused. He's like, this is good news. Why, why, were, why, are, why do you sound so depressed? And, and Hume's response was just imagine what it's like growing up every day thinking about the end of the world. Um, so um, the uh, um, next step was to bring on a producer and they brought on a brilliant producer who's gone on to have a very long and successful career named Robert Papazian. In this instance, this was he was an executive producer who was really charged with just keeping the train on the tracks and making sure they deliver the film. And that meant bringing all of the pieces and the elements together. And the next obvious big step in the process was to find a director. And they were dedicated, committed to finding a feature film director who could bring them not only that cachet, but would have a vision for bringing a larger scope and scale for this movie and that's when they came across nick meyer who had just produced this phenomenal successful star trek II: the wrath of khan um things go a little crazy from that point um nick was um a brilliant uh but obstreperous kind of director who had a very strong vision for the movie he wanted to make um did not necessarily always align with the Movie that the AB that the network wanted to make or that Brandon wanted to make. There were also a number of really key executives that worked for Brandon in the programming departments. Do Samuels and Steve White were very very much a part of the making of the project, and uh, and then the movie went on from there. So that's a little bit of the what we call the development process for the movie um, before it actually went into production.
0: Yeah, I, I saw that. That Nick Meyer is also uh, famous for writing a Sherlock Holmes novel where, um, where Sigmund Freud helps Sherlock Holmes overcome a, an addiction to cocaine,
1: uh, which I found yeah. pretty amusing. Nick is kind of amazing because he he has been able to toggle between um, uh, writing books and screenwriting and directing. Uh, he's truly one of the most brilliant and, and uh, learned men I've ever I've ever encountered and I've met been fortunate to meet a lot of talented people um and this was definitely though a uh unfortunately an oil and water event where sometimes you get a brilliant creative uh person clashing with another creative person and you lose some respect and things go a little dark and uh that's pretty much what happened with the the making of this movie the The film started coming in. The dailies started coming in. The network was immediately concerned that this was going way too slowly and even too dark. And uh, they had some strong concerns, even though they loved the script. There were a few scenes that they, they thought they could not get away with. There were some really ridiculous notes, quite truthfully. And this is true of every movie that ever gets made is other people come in well intentioned, trying to preserve the network from any sort of backlash but end up making some truly absurd kind of request to change lines or cut scenes or to limit the amount of death and, and misery in the in the film. And Nick was having none of it. He had signed on to make this one movie and that was what he was determined to make. And um, once the um, director's cut, or at least the first or the full director's kit came in. It was, um, and this is where we get into a lot of 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 uh, different opinions. But from Nick's point of view, the network loved it, but it couldn't continue with a two night version, which was the original plan, because no advertisers were coming. From the network's point of view, it was terrible. It was a dull, slow, boring movie, and took forever to get to the actual event, the bomb and they knew that once you know the bomb went off they weren't going to get audiences to come back so they decided to turn it into a single night event and um things didn't go well from there um the cut didn't get to met to the network satisfaction nick got taken off the movie and he has written very openly about how that um may, led to his, such deep depression he contemplated suicide it was. Uh, hardest thing in the world as you could imagine is that you dedicate a whole year of your life to making what you think is perhaps the most important story you could ever make and then you get fired i mean that's that's kind of brutal um but from the network's point of view their job was to make the most powerful compelling movie they could and they just had creative dis- disagreement but um things get really interesting at that point things go really uh in a whole new direction um I'm just going to launch in if that's all right, because um, mysteriously um, the film found its way into the hands of these two rogue publicists. What I mean by rogue publicists is that these were people who knew how PR worked in Hollywood and had done some PR in Hollywood. But at that time they were actively involved in the nuclear freeze movement and in the anti-nuclear movement. And the, the, A cut of the film landed into their hands and they were given kind of illicit uh, license to go off and run with it. And what they did was they brought the news folks in to screen the movie, literally in the basement of their parents' house in Brentwood. Um, They uh, crafted these amazing um, viewing guides and sent it out to hundreds, maybe even thousands of activist organizations that were aligned around trying to bring an end to the arms race. Um, There were just an infinite number of things. It was like a two-man team who just um, hijacked the film and turned it into a cause. And the combination of their work, the combination of the extraordinary concept and execution of the film itself, um, obviously there were people over in abc who are eager to market and promote the movie despite the fact that it was causing a huge amount of, of backlash out in the public sphere um these all kind of culminated in making this the most most watched tv movie of all time from the outside the drama continued to accelerate because This was the era of the Reagan revolution. There had been this alliance between the um, neoconservatives who were very aggressively interested in American um, global domination or success. There was an alliance with the evangelical movement led by people like Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority. All of them had come out very much in favor of Reagan's philosophy of peace through strength. And that was continuing the buildup of the nuclear arms, engaging in very provocative nuclear saber rattling with the Soviet Union. Um, Some people in his um, Pentagon were walking around describing how we might win a nuclear war. All you had to do was get a shovel and bury yourself for a few days. And when you came out, everything would be fine. Literally, this was the sort of attitude that was going around. Um, Reagan gave a speech calling the Russians the evil empire, which is not the best diplomatic way to proceed. He had um, gone on television and proposed that we would launch something that became called Star Wars, which was a um, uh, a laser based defense system in space that immediately struck the Soviets as yet another escalation of a threat. Unbeknownst to, to Reagan at the time and the, and the administration at the time, there was um, total chaos happening in the Soviet Union. They had lost um, one leader and Andropov, who was the premier at the time, was borderline paranoid, crazy, and was also dying from um, uh, uh, organ failure. and uh, And all of these remarks and provocations and threats Coming from the U.S., convinced the Soviets so that it was imminent that they were going to be invaded, if not destroyed and completely obliterated by the U.S. So they were crouched in a spectacular level of paranoia. And there's one more part of this equation, which is that um, at that ex- at that time period, all of our weapon systems were being converted from analog into digital, and there were just countless. Countless moments where we were literally one button away from World War III. I mean, in uh, 1979, um, uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, Defense Minister Brzezinski was woken up at three in the morning and was told there were 3000 new Russian warheads heading our way. Turned out that was a simulation put in the machine by accident and was a glitch caused by a faulty fuse that was the dollar ninety eight. Um, that became the plot, by the way, of a movie called War Games, which is one of my favorite. Um, there were um, also in the Soviet Union instances where um, they misread uh, what well, turned out to be just a solar flare as incoming U.S. missiles. And if it weren't for a single lieutenant in the Soviet Army who decided maybe this was a mistake, it couldn't possibly be true, they would have launched retaliatory attack. So we were just living right there on the precipice of uh, very possible World War III and nuclear obliteration. And then this was the also the rise of, like I said, the nuclear freeze movement, a um, huge groundswell of populist support. Everyone was already convinced that we had to stop this arms race, but no one could imagine how to go about it. Um, and part of this film, was able to imagine, particularly for one person, what the consequence of nuclear war would be, and that one person obviously was Ronald Reagan.
0: You know, with with this backdrop, you know, the movie premieres without giving everything away. Can you tell us a little bit about the film, and you know, maybe maybe give a, a brief review? What do you what do you actually think of the film? Is it a good
1: movie? Yeah. Is it Um, even the filmmakers do not think it's a good movie. In fact, um, Nick Meyer would often say, I didn't, wasn't trying to make a great movie. I was trying to make a movie that was almost banal and meaningless and boring until suddenly all of that banality just came to a fast end. Um, it's pretty creaky. Um, I wouldn't describe it as one of the best TV movies ever made, or even certainly not one of the best features ever made, but I mean, what it did well um, was uh, a shock to the system to take everyday kind of American Midwestern imaginary, the kind of way that Hollywood has always depicted the Midwest as some sort of bucolic place where people live very simple lives. We all know that's completely made up. And the Midwest is full of you know as much diversity and interesting things as ever anywhere else. But that was an imagined place that suddenly got um, decimated and. I think the biggest shock of the film for audiences was twofold. The aftermath was something no one had thought about. Everyone was um, well prepared for the attack, but I don't think anyone was prepared for the slow, steady descent into complete dystopian anarchy afterwards. And it was unrelenting. It did not have your cinematic Hollywood happy ending by any stretch of the imagination. It has a very, very bleak ending. There's one more part of that night that I feel obliged to talk about, which to me is the one-two punch of what made this evening the most important night of television in history. And that is, um, after the movie aired, um, ABC News aired a special called Viewpoint. It was hosted and produced by Ted Koppel. And it was a kind of a uh, unusual format, which was a uh, kind of a live debate that also had audiences calling in or asking questions um, for the debate participants. So in some ways it emulated stimulated the kind of interactivity that we now have from, you know, American Idol, really, you can all come in and vote for your favorite singer. Here was, here was a chance to vote for your favorite public intellectual and sitting around the table were some of the most powerful public intellectuals of our day from Ellie Wiesel to, um, William F. Buckley to George Schultz, um, the Secretary of State, um, and they were all sitting around and they proceeded to have what to me is the most terrifying thing you could imagine, a completely academic, cerebral, civil debate as to whether or not they believed the world would end from a nuclear attack. It was, to me, infinitely more frightening than what they had witnessed. And Ted Koppel does this amazing, miraculous job of segueing the audience. He literally says, he opens up the, the viewpoint special and says, everyone, get up. Go look outside your window. As you will notice, we're still here. <laughs> we didn't just all just see society crumble in the wake of a nuclear attack. This was fiction. It was fantasy. But it's a little bit like Dickens' Christmas Curl. It was a what-if scenario that we need to take very seriously. And tonight we're gonna discuss whether or not fiction could become fact. And um, you watch these people carry out this debate and you think, am I really happy? Is this really happening? Are we literally debating will the world end or not? And to me, that was the punctuation mark. That really was the most brilliant coda for everyone. And it had a huge audience. I mean, if there were over 100 million people for the movie, There were close to 70 million who watched this special. And it's a combination of these two things that I believe really settled into people's minds that it was um, time that we put an end to this. Something had to happen. Um, But just to go back to um, how did it really land and how did it really change the world? Well, it turns out um, that that takes us a month earlier before the movie even aired yeah can you tell us about that sure so the white house um regularly screened a movie almost every week it was like a, a like friday night at the white house was almost a standard and they saw over 300 movies at the white house the president came from hollywood he was an actor in hollywood he led the screen actors guild which is how he got really interested more in the political side of things he became the governor of california And then he became president of the United States. But it was well known and well understood that if you wanted to reach the president with some information about the world, show him a movie. His understanding and his ability to make meaning of the world came from the films he had seen, including the films he'd been in. And um, in many ways, it's not an insult to say that, because that's a lot of what goes on in our world today. A lot of the way we make meaning of the world is from our social media and the what sits in the palm of our hands that we're, you know, scrolling up or sli- swiping left or however um, we go through it. So it shouldn't surprise any of us that even the most powerful man in the world was better informed by the world through Hollywood movie making than, say, briefing books or policy books or some old textbook that it might have been, you know, put on his nightstand so barring that in mind and this is not a premise that i came up with is what reagan historians have described for decades was part of what people knew in the white house and in his administration the best way to inform him Um, they did not want him to watch the day after in fact his staff went out of the way to keep him from watching it because they were pretty unclear what the impact might be Um, but the other surprise that came out of my research was one of the things they were concerned about is that Reagan was not a uh, aligned with the pro-nuclear side of let's keep building more bombs and doing more buildup and let's keep um, keep advancing. we got to stay one step ahead. He was a nuclear abolitionist. He wanted all nuclear weapons to go away. And it, the thing that was kind of curious is he kept that a secret. Um, And his White House staff kept that a pretty close secret. They understood you can't talk like that. You can't mention that. You can't let anyone know that. Uh, If you were to let that come out, you would lose your neoconservatives on the right, and you would lose your evangelicals on the right, and it would be the end of your political career. So he kept that all under the vest, and he was way too politically savvy to let that on. But then he insisted on watching the movie. He'd seen a review of the film in the National Review, and he thought, you know what, I better see this. And he arranged to get a copy of the film when he was staying at Camp David. And he wrote in his diary after watching the film that it had left him very depressed, that it was an extremely effective movie, and that it confirmed that there must be something more he should or could be doing to to change the path that we were on. More goes on in this story that I won't I won't go into more detail, but this was accompanied by a series of foreign policy blunders and near accidents and huge kinds of calamitous circumstances that really in the fall of 1903, we got closer than ever, not only to the nuclear war, but just completely full-throttled superpower conflict um, that would have pulled the entire planet into disarray. And um, shortly after watching the movie and roughly, About three months later, he went from describing the Soviet Union as an evil empire to describing how Soviet people are God's children just like us. Um, Not only did he completely change in terms of his rhetoric in in talking about the Soviet Union and nuclear war, But he initiated a number of changes in the White House and the administration, not least of which were very strong overtures to the Soviet Union to say, can we meet more? Can we have more summits? Can we get more of our people to meet and know your people? He was convinced that the one only way to get around this was diplomatic channels, which was very unlike him. That did not align with the peace through strength motto. So historians referred to all of these changes as Reagan's reversal. And some historians suggest that part of what initiated that was his watching this movie and having a visceral, deeply felt understanding of the real consequences of nuclear war and why it it could not ever happen.
0: So you mentioned that that this was, you know, his uh, nuclear abolition, abolitionism was something that he kept... Uh, kept to himself or or kept within the White House, um, and you know, the impact that this movie had on him and his, his reversal. Uh, but you know, how, how did regular American citizens react, you know, in addition to ah, uh, you know, interest groups like like evangelicals that you mentioned?
1: so you know, even evangelicals were convinced that we were going to have a nuclear Armageddon in their future. It was just for them that was a. Uh part of their religious beliefs that it was actually something to look forward to, that it would anticipate the second coming of Christ. Um, But the vast majority of Americans were already persuaded that the arms race was bad and needed to end. So this movie did not, in that regard, move the dial. But where it did move the dial was a great deal more people started showing up, not only for the nuclear freeze, but joining and aligning and partnering with the um, various anti-nuclear organizations. Um, and more than anything else, an entire citizenry came aligned around a deeper, more meaningful awareness of the peril and threat of nuclear war. And um, scientists studied this for decades after this movie aired, and the vast consensus was that it it had more of an affective impact on people's deeply felt understanding of the horrible risk of nuclear war. So whereas before it may have resided in some sort of kind of inert intellectual corners of our brain as some sort of weird science fiction possibility, it became visceral. And it was something that they could feel and understand and realize that this was not the path we could continue on. And as we now know from history, um, not only did Reagan change his rhetoric and policy, but it led to a initial summit with um, the new premier of the Soviet Union, um, Gorbachev. And over the course of the next couple of years, they finally entered into nuclear disarmament talks, which pretty much brought an end to the arms race and pulled us back from the brink. And um, they left us with a powerful lesson um, here for what the consequences of uh, storytelling has the potential to do what impact
0: did the film have globally besides the impact on Reagan's rhetoric uh but you know especially the soviet union was the film's popularity a strictly
1: american phenomenon no no actually what's so fascinating is even though the film aired on television and it hardly had any advertising because so many people were afraid of putting you know the only people were the popcorn uh makers and maybe some uh, i think a computer ad um and so it kind of lost tons of money when it aired here but it got released around the world theatrically. And um, it was shown in movie theaters um, almost right after it aired here. In fact, in Germany, it became um, such a huge box office hit. It almost um, was more successful than Empire Strikes Back, Empire Strikes Back. So it was number two in the box office in Germany. And that was in part because at the same time that the movie was being shown, Um, The U.S. was putting Pershing missiles on European territory, and there was a huge backlash around that. Um, So the movie kind of came in at the exact time that Europe was very afraid that this was the further step towards our nuclear oblivion. So, um, yeah, it went on to make a ton of money around the world theatrically. And it did eventually air in the Soviet Union. They did actually the post-Soviet Union when um after the dissolution, they aired it on Russian television. Um, I think I forget the name of it. They renamed the the movie, but it was eventually seen um even in Russia and understood as a as a as a, a message movie.
0: The hero of your story, Brandon Stoddard, you know, what, what was the what, what happened to him after after this this movie? What was the uh the rest of his career like after the day after
1: well um it's complicated so he he went on to um go on from being head of movies to head of programming and that meant he was in charge of every facet of prime time and and daytime and uh and it was a hugely powerful important position Uh, in fairness I think it took him a little bit away from what had been his love of the tv movie format but he did manage to get a number of shows on the air in that um, mid to late 80s that um, in their own way, even in the sitcom form, much like Norman Lear, who rest in peace, had just passed away, were stories that could speak to the human condition, to the human spirit, raise bunch and foreground bunch of issues um, that we were all dealing with. But usually these were buried within the, the genres and the formats of television. Um, and then it, it became time where television had changed so dramatically by the early 90s that, um, that um, he, he, his, his moment had come and gone. He'd spent over 20 plus years uh, really radically changing the medium and the messaging and the power of television. And so he, he ultimately he stepped down. And then at times, as a lot of us do, he retired and went on to teach, ironically, at my school, uh, over in the cinematic art school. Um, but there's an interesting weird twist in the story, um, with him is that, um, there was such a palpable backlash from the right that this film had such a political mission and message, even though it didn't capture, um, and was not explicit in any way about who started the war or the cause of the war that he did wind up uh, making a, uh, Really expensive long mini series, limited series, I think we'd call it today, called America with a K. And um, it was as much of a right wing fantasy as the day after might be considered a left wing fantasy. It was imagining the uh, US lost to the Soviet Union and had been invaded, and that now the heartland of America, which again was always hit where so much of these stories were set was now ruled by some sort of fascist military um, pro-Soviet kind of world. And these were um, kind of caricaturistic and grotesque kind of characters doing all sorts of cruel acts. And uh, it played right into right-wing fantasies, kind of like movies like red Dawn out there for Brandon. It was not a political film. It was just a high concept project that he thought for sure would also in the same sort of numbers that he had, it didn't. Um, It was uh, way too long, way too slow. And at the end of the day, not nearly as aligned with what people seem to be that interested in. Uh, Didn't tap into the same appeal as the day after. But, you know, it was part of of Brandon's ethos that he, you know, if it's a high concept, it must be made. Um, and not every film and not every project that he made would succeed, but um, that was who he who was. But fundamentally, it didn't. I don't think it in any way detracts from all the things that he accomplished throughout his career, from from the Schoolhouse Rock and after school specials to Roots and the Day After. I think he um, deserves to be recognized. As do uh, the everyone involved in this project. To me, were kind of fearless. Um, there's every reason to believe that their participation in a movie like this could have ended their careers, uh, certainly drove them like Nick Meyer to the brink. Um, and to me, it was a, a mark of a kind of courage, creative courage um, to still go forward and find some way to get this on the screen. And that's the the most palpable lesson and takeaway for me of the film is that it's not a history lesson, it's a how-to book. Um, to me it's a it's a it's a story that ought to resonate today in fact i was um writing scenes um from the book and then when i would take a break i would turn on the tv and i'm a news junkie and then watch the scenes from that i just read in the book play out in real life on cnn with the war in ukraine and the attack on the nuclear power plant and cypriza and the reemergence of horrible events in the Midwest, in the Middle East, which we're still dealing with very palpably today, um, and the renewed threats of a Cold War and a new arms race, and rogue states like Korea blowing, sending bombs, uh, you know, and missiles over Japan to um, a reinvigorated China now launching a brand new era of of nuclear of missiles and. The Soviets, or sorry, the Russians and Putin, still advancing their nuclear arsenal. Um, we're hardly out of the the threat of not only nuclear war, but of, of many forms of existential crises, from climate change um, to continued conflict and class struggle. And yeah. uh, that's where the book lin- takes us to. I hope. I hope is that. It's going to come down to storytellers figuring out how to use today's media social media creators and influencers to figure out to do what that medium can make available and make possible um to save the world
0: yeah i think i think that this story the the making of the day after in itself would make for a fascinating film and just the you know especially with the the tie-in to, to reagan and his film his film background and the the impact that that film uh you know was capable of having on him uh you know if, if reagan hadn't had that background in in movies and that love for movies then maybe the maybe this wouldn't have a, have had the same influence on him and and history could have been could have been different uh so you know i think this is a really fascinating
1: story definitely still relevant for our, for our present time I hope so. I'd love to see this get adapted as a making of making of a movie about the making of the most important movie ever made and the most powerful night of television ever witnessed. Um, I, 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 It's kind of a, a long-held desire of mine, not just because of my deep respect for everyone involved in making the movie, but I think there's a powerful takeaway from that. Um, every medium throughout history has had people like Brandon Stoddard and Nick Meyer and Bob Papazian and Ed Hume, every single one has discovered ways to figure out whatever that technology is, whatever that medium does to try to make sure that the world keeps spinning forward. And I hope that when people read this book, that's kind of what they take away from that um, is that the power now lives in the palm of their hands to save the planet. Well, David, thank you so much for being guests on the New Books Network. It was great to talk
0: to you about Apocalypse Television, how the day after helped end the Cold War.
1: Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much to you too.